Hello and welcome to the newest edition of Field Days. My name is Noah Nagy and I'm joined by co-host Greg Straub. We are back in Jackson. We were getting ready to go with part two of the heroin series where last time, Greg, we had the opportunity to meet with Deputy Chief Elmer Hitt of the Jackson City Police Department along with Lieutenant Chris Simpson. We had an opportunity to talk with them. They had been involved in a heroin summit the last couple years and, and really kind of see the impact it's had here locally in Jackson. You know, not just here in Jackson, but how it's kind of expanded. It's a issue and it's a, it's a national issue. And in the sense that they're taping of our last show. I know you and I have been receiving emails from many people uh, in regards to articles that they've seen both in USA Today, uh, you know, out in Battle Creek. We have Asian Battle Creek e emails about some of the issues they've had out there. You know, I, I, I know I talked to some treatment providers in the uh, Metro Detroit area, and, and they were talking about the impact it's had on them. The heroin and, and opiate prescription drug issue is, is one that's growing. In the article that I know you'll touch on here later on, Greg, talks about the, in New Hampshire and, you know, how it's, it's becoming uh, part of the presidential race and you know having to be able to comment at, comment on that and have an understanding of that and how we're going to deal with that and today we'll, we'll be very fortunate enough to talk to circuit court judge Susan Beebe in Jackson and, and see how it affected her role as a judge and, and the impact it's having there but in the meantime Greg uh, you know since the last time we met we had uh, Governor Snyder come out with the budget and it looked like uh, there were some pretty important things involved in the budget in regards to correction. No, that, no you're right but you know what you know, I've known you for a very very long time though and I'm, I'm shocked and almost surprised you didn't tell everybody the good news about the podcast oh my gosh i know i was i was so excited i think i want you to share it well you know we uh we, we've been accepted to itunes so now send that message to the masses absolutely and by masses i mean three people now let's be let's keep it real here now it was very well received in the government organizational section on, on iTunes yep. and uh, you know we were up there you know out of a a group of four or five hundred podcasts we were up there pretty high so top five wasn't it? i think so so it, it, that, that's exciting the, the, why it's exciting is because the message is getting out and especially right. at a topic like this uh, heroin and prescription drugs so it, the timing of that that was the first time our show w was able to go on itunes that was good timing because we got the, the message out elmer and chris simpson did a great job of sharing the effects here locally in jackson and what, what they're doing and as we move forward in this series, we're going to have uh, the opportunity to talk with judges and other community members along with MDLC staff, as we mentioned last time, to share that message and, and show you how important it is that we work together as a team to battle this troubling addiction. Right, right. But not, not only this message, because, I mean, the heroin issue is a, a huge problem across the nation. But, you know, we're doing some good stuff there, Hunter Crisis, though. You know, we have, a, we have a director who is getting some stuff done. We have a deputy director who they're really on this stuff and they're paying attention to it and they're on their radar. And another good reason that on iTunes we can share this stuff with Absolutely. everybody because we have some good staff in front of the corrections. We do. And, it, you know, it's funny you say that. Well, I also wanted to make sure we had the opportunity to uh, thank and mention Marseille Allen, an ADSS employee. Uh, she put together a GoFundMe page for Flint. She, I believe she was able to raise over 50000 during that time. And she, I know she's been very active in, in that community and trying to. Uh, assist in that and the Department of Corrections as a whole has been very active in the Flint community and making sure I know we have staff there every day right now uh, and it's been a you know important piece and very uh, been very time consuming very hard work but staff are doing a great job and really stepping up and, and helping out when needed you know congrats to Mars for doing what she's done and I know she's got a lot of publicity for this but 
I know she's not doing it for that reason. She's doing it to help the residents of Flint out. You know, thanks a lot for what you do, Mars. And though you, you touched on, you know, some articles that people are sending us now. You know, they just had the presidential primary out in New Hampshire recently. And this article came out of New Hampshire that talked about just the amount of, they call it a, a heroin apocalypse in, right, in, right. in New Hampshire. And, you know, it's devastating out there. And, uh, we, you know, I touched on this last podcast. We talked about, you know, in 2013, from 2002 to 2013, the amount of heroin overdoses quadrupled. Wow. I mean, that's an amazing right. number. Claiming more than 8,000 lives in 2013, according to the CDC. So that's a problem. It is a problem. I mean, when something quadruples in about 10 years, that's a huge problem, man. Well, you know, and one of the things that Elmer touched on right at the end of our podcast last week was that it's it's everybody. It's not just, not there's no, you can't stereotype the person who's addicted to heroin or a prescription drug. It's, you know, your kids that are in high school, it's your college student, it's your all-American athletes. athletes. Uh, it, it's everybody. And, and, you know, Elmer did a good job of really stressing to make sure you're aware of, of the surroundings. And if you see somebody that's struggling, make sure that you're getting them help immediately because it it hits every every everybody and uh, we have to be work together as a team as we've been mentioning well you know it's bad when you know in this article a, a mother of a 26 year old her son is addicted to heroin and it's 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 very telling when a mother in this article talks about you know how her son has battled this addiction for the past decade and he's now in jail and it says she couldn't be happier right. she couldn't be happier that her 26 year old son is in yeah. jail that was the only way she was going to help him yeah he's overdosed multiple times once attempted suicide he said he's safe and sound and has a place to sleep i mean that's yeah. that's where we're at right now yeah. and you know that's that's the importance of what we're doing right now in this in this heroin series and talking the key players in the community, judges, prosecutors, law enforcement, you know, our MDOC staff who are you know, on the front line every day dealing with this. And yeah, and it's important that, you know, the message gets out to them to have an understanding of, of what they're dealing with and how serious this is and how big of a problem. And it's not just a local problem. It's not a Jackson problem or, or a Battle Creek problem. It's a, it's a it's a national problem. It's a state problem, national problem, and it's something that's going to need to be addressed. And we're, like I said earlier, we're going to have the opportunity to talk to one of the judges here in Jackson County. But before we get to that, Greg, we, we kind of got off a little bit there. By one, you know, the governor came out with the budget here oh, right. recently. And uh, they had some important things that came up in regards to corrections. Would you like to touch on that? Yeah. Um, I, you know, the deputy director put it on Twitter uh, last week, and there was a, I don't know if you caught it, there was a key line item in there that is huge for FOA. It's absolutely huge. Because I know Deputy Director Marlin has been talking about this for a long time since he came into this position right. uh, about a year ago about agent safety. Right. It is it's a top priority for him. And the governor proposed in a line item uh, almost a million dollars to outfit all of FOA, all field agents, with ballistic vests. Yeah. That's huge. That's I mean, we, we've so. been talking about this for many, many, many years, and I know uh, Deputy Director Marlin made this a priority, and you know he worked he worked it out to to get this into a proposed budget for us. And you know the Deputy Director was quoted as saying, "The safety of our field staff is our top priority, and equipping them with these ballistic vests will definitely provide an added added layer of protection while they are working in the field." So that just speaks to his vision on this and uh, the hard work that he put into it because it is it is a priority for him. No question, and, and we're very grateful for that. And it is it's important. Uh, you know, our agents are going into uh, some very difficult situations sometimes, and, and, and agent safety has to be uh, a priority. And uh, we need to make sure that uh, you know, as deputy director has mentioned, make that you know one of our top priorities and, and keeping everybody safe. So you know, good news. very grateful. Right. Absolutely, yeah, very good. Very, very much so. Who we got, Noah? We got. I know we have a uh, you know a very important topic. Why don't, why don't we get uh, on business here? Yes, Greg, today's guest is a 1997 Michigan State University graduate, also went to law school at Michigan State where she graduated in 2001. She became a prosecuting attorney in Jackson County in 2001 where she remained an attorney until 2008. 
She's a member of the advisory board for the Salvation Army here in Jackson. She's on the board of directors for Jackson College Foundation. She's the fourth circuit court recovery court judge, family court, and also handles criminal cases. Today's guest is Judge Susan Beebe. Susan, welcome. Thank you. It's great to have you. And, and as, as you heard us talking here earlier, we had an opportunity last last show to talk with with Elmer Hitt and Chris Simpson from the Jackson PD, and they really had an opportunity to share the involvement they've had with the recovery court and the courts, and, and how important it is to work as a team to to battle heroin and the prescription drug usage. And and I'm sure as as a judge who sits in the recovery court, you're seeing a huge uptake in, in this type of crime, aren't you? Absolutely. What are some of the things you're seeing? Well, when I was a prosecutor, I was assigned to the recovery court, and the recovery court in Jackson has been. In existence since 2004. I joined in 2006 and at that point in time the vast majority of our recovery court population the drug of choice was alcohol okay and we had really good success with alcoholics and then there was an uptick in methamphetamine a few years back and we had to sort of adjust some of our mm. structures to deal with that particular substance and now the overwhelming majority of our participants and we're up at 60 right now are opiate addicts well, you know, Judge, I, it's funny that you say that because I, that is the trend that we are seeing in the Department of Corrections, too, because, you know, when, when the Deputy Director Marlin goes out and visits offices, he's been to 100 of our 105 field offices so far, and the question he always asks is, what's driving the crime in this community? What are the PSIs you're writing about? And it's exactly what you said. It's everyone, everyone, except for maybe one county I can think of in Southwest right. uh, Michigan, where it was meth, but yeah. every other county said heroin and prescription medication driving the crime in this in this in this community so you know it sounds to me that you know you're you're a criminal judge you're in recovery courts is is this problem becoming a crime problem I mean is addiction are you seeing this as you know not an addiction it's this addiction problem is a crime problem now right it's becoming that and of course the addiction precedes the crime right and yes of course that's it is a huge problem and we see a lot of home invasions and vehicle thefts anything where they can steal something and make quick money to turn it around and buy drugs. Now, are you seeing that somebody is, is starting on prescription drugs and then moving to the heroin because it's cheaper? Is that Nearly what every time, yes. Is it really? Okay. Yes. Interesting. That's very interesting. It is. It, you know, and, and that's the same thing that uh, Chris and Elmer were saying last week, and I, I think we've, we've seen that unanimously, unanimously mm -hmm. throughout. You know, what are some of the things that you're seeing that, that are helping combat this issue? The only way to combat this issue, there are a few things that complicate it. A lot of our population that are opiate dependent, mm -hmm. they're younger. Right. So it's very difficult to treat people that are younger too because the brain isn't fully developed until somebody is around 24 years old. But when we have these young people that started abusing opiates at 12 and 13 years old, the brain development has stunted to some degree. Mm -hmm. And so even grasping recovery concepts is very difficult out of the gate just because of the neurological damage they've done to themselves. So you have to take that into consideration. But really the only way to combat opiate addiction is long-term treatment. And on a case-by-case -case basis, the person has to be properly diagnosed and screened because the other thing to consider is 99% of our population in recovery mm. court has some trauma background too. Right. So we really have to push to address the trauma in addition to the substance abuse treatments. So treatment is the answer and long-term treatment and hopefully aftercare and more treatment after that. So are you seeing that, you know, somebody that goes through your recovery court, are you seeing um, instances of relapse and then treatment and the relapse. I, I, yes. Are you seeing a trend of, you know, because I, as a department, you know, we, we look to treat this addiction for their long-term success, just like you do. 
you know, we don't look to throw somebody in prison for failing treatment or relapsing because, you know, we're, we're looking to help the person out. How does your court run when, you know, somebody relapses or fails out of treatment or is not ready for that change yet? How do you handle that? We have a graduated sanction process and the primary philosophy behind drug courts is we are here to serve a high risk, high needs population. And you have to set, you have to look at proximal and distal goals. There's a science that there's a guy, his name is Dr. Marlowe, Dr. Doug Marlowe, and he studies this. And so we focus on proximal and distal goals. Sometimes when we have people that come into the program, it isn't possible for them to stop using. So you're going to punish or sanction something that's within their grasp and within their capacity to do more severely than you're going to punish something that they're not, that Mm -hmm. they don't have the capacity to do. So someone first comes into the program and they can't stop using, that's not as big of a deal as if they just can't change some very basic behaviors like making it to a drug screen. So we have to focus on what is this person capable of doing? And if they're not capable of stopping using, then we need to address that very quickly by way of treatment, not necessarily jail. And how, I mean, what type of treatment are, are you looking for in a, in a situation like that? What, what is it a long-term? Residential. Re- yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Long-term residential, 12-step based type of treatment, mm-hmm. yes. Now, do you, are you finding that there, the resources for treatment are readily available? Or is that an area that we need to look to develop more as a community and, and, and department and the courts and, and, you know, and all of us? I mean, is, are you struggling to find places to put people into treatment? I don't feel like we struggle to find places to put people for treatment. I think we've been very fortunate mm-hmm. in that regard. We were fortunate enough to have some really strong substance abuse treatment program in Michigan, and we've been very fortunate to have some federal backing, federal grant backing. So we've been able to send folks to Don Farms. Right. We, through the Department of Corrections, we have spots in um, Harbor Hall. Right. And we have some more behavioral-based programs too if there's a co-occurring diagnosis. I think where we struggle the most is aftercare and sober living. Mm-hmm. We do not have that as a resource in Jackson. So that's one place we struggle. Well, as far as your court goes, are you seeing successes come out of this program? Are you are you seeing more successes or failures? I mean, is, are, we, are, we, are we getting ahead of this problem or are we, are we still lagging behind, do you think? I think we're making slow progress. Right around 70% of our participants successfully complete the recovery court program and maintain some type of sobriety or some amount of sobriety is the better word thereafter. There is definitely a high relapse rate for opiate addicts and sometimes frankly they just don't get through the program. But prison is a very last ditch effort for us. We use that as a tool only to essentially keep people alive until maybe their brains can heal enough that they can start to grasp the recovery concepts that they learn in treatment. So as a rule, we're almost always going to try residential treatment first any kind of aftercare programming and then outpatient and then just support within our program, within the community, recovery coaches we Mm -hmm. have on our team. We're gonna use every possible option and when that fails and it comes down to, is this person going to get better or are we just gonna keep this person alive? That's, prison is the very last option. Well, and I know you work closely with some probation agents in Jackson County. Um, You know, they struggle with this on a daily basis with people who are in life or death situations. So. Uh, it's interesting to hear your point of view on that. Uh, who, who do you work with it, it, from our staff? Well, we have Agent Lisa Hendricks, and currently Aaron, a, Agent Aaron Dungey is assigned to the Recovery Court. Prior to that, Tony Andora was assigned to the program, and he and Lisa, I believe, were with the program since its inception or very shortly thereafter. And they were, they're exemplary. They were very invested 
in the recovery court and they educated themselves on addiction, went to trainings, and added to that, they both just had really great instincts when it came to stuff like this. And you can, there are some people that you can teach them and teach them and teach them, and, but when you add that to really good instincts, they were exemplary, and Agent Dungy seems to be picking right up where Agent Andor left off. And it sounds like, you know, as Judge Beebe is talking here, that you truly have a passion for, for this, and, and the agents have a passion for that. And that's really to help kind of combat this, you need to have a passion to, for people and, and care enough that continue to do the research. And it's, it's not, you know, an eight to five job, right? I mean, that's something that they have to be willing to do. Uh, at all times of the day. It's and people business. Yeah, absolutely. We yeah. talk about our participants all the time, whether mm-hmm. it's after 5 o'clock or on the weekends, right. and we're, when somebody misses court, we're concerned. When we know they're missing treatments, we're concerned. Right. We try to figure out what else can we do for this person, and we focus on what, what do we have left as a system to give them before we go to the last resort. Now, how do you see, as moving forward with this, this issue, what do you see as some of the answers or, or what are some of the things that you would like to see kind of come in, come together and develop so that we can continue to work on the, beating this issue? There are two things, really. I think that, as I mentioned before, there's a real need for safe, sober living, mm-hmm. which is a difficult situation in and of itself sure. because it's not just a matter of finding four walls to have people stay. It's a matter of having the appropriate staff mm-hmm. and then having the funding funding to continually and properly monitor them because it's a matter of drug tests and having the right person that's overseeing them. So sober living is one need. And then the other thing on the horizon, and they're really focusing on this in the state and national trainings for drug court professionals, Mm -hmm. is medication-assisted treatment and withdrawals. They call it MAT. And that's that's on the horizon. And there are some some new, not necessarily new, but drugs that are they're using to help folks with cravings and things of that nature. And they've had some success with it to keep people sober. Drug court professionals are always concerned with the proper monitoring of those medications because we don't want to the advantage of swapping one addiction for the next. We want to make sure that it's really a situation where we're using those resources until they're right or to support them being ready for fully recovery and not being reliant on medication again right that's that's great and you know judge we i I can't thank you enough for you know coming on field days today and giving us your perspective and your passion for uh, number one helping people but number two is educating our staff in in what in your expertise and being a judge and seeing this on a daily basis and I, i think what you shared will be helpful and you know, on behalf of the director and the deputy director, we thank you so much for coming on today and, and you know, giving us a little insight into your job and how you're combating the heroin problem. In Absolutely, Mexico. yeah. Thank you, Judge. It's it's not an it's not an easy battle, and it's one that will be ongoing for some time. But it sounds like judges and, and her team are definitely taking the right steps and moving forward. And, and there, like we said, there's definitely a passion here. Uh, to combat this it's just a matter of you know continuing to to look to the future and, and you know pull together all the resources to keep working on this and, and identifying you know the issues you know it's going to be an ever-changing as you heard her talk about earlier on you know the drug of choice here in jackson county has changed from alcohol to meth and you know heroin and the heroin usage is going to continue to grow and we got to continue to look at a way to you know fight that well, she gave some good examples of you know some things that she thinks that we could do to help the court here fight that so 
We appreciate it. Thank you very much, Judge. Thanks for coming. We can't thank Judge Beebe enough for joining us and, and sharing some of her expertise on, on this heroin issue, prescription drug issue. And uh, as we continue to move forward in the next few series on this, you know, we'll have opportunity to interview some prosecutor out of uh, Monroe County. Yep. And then we're also going to talk with some of our, our own MDOC staff and, and how they've been involved in in this and in the, the battle against it. And we also hope, hope to touch, uh, have an opportunity to talk with some community members and, and how they see the battle from the community standpoint and, and some of the issues they're seeing and, and some of the efforts they're making because there are a lot of active community members you know, taking their own time and volunteering to, you know, this is part of our day-to-day work life, but uh, it's also, you know, in the communities we live in, folks in the communities volunteering and, and making an effort. So not only that, more, but people who have lost loved ones because of this. No question. Problem, so. No question. And, and and that's a growing issue. And then, like you had mentioned there, that the article out of USA Today, how family are just grateful that their their children are locked up, so they know they're safe, right, and still alive. So I'm looking forward to it. It's great information, um, and I'm looking forward to continuing to talk to folks about this and learn more about it and see how it's impacting yeah. the different communities. Yeah. Stay tuned to the part three, four, and five of this. That's right. So, that's right. But you know, before we before we sign up, Noah, I do want to talk to you because I know this just started. You you know you're over at DRC now, and you're the deputy warden over there. And I know you're doing some really really interesting things. And I know the RAP program just started. So it did. The, why don't you why don't you tell everybody about that program real yeah, quick? Wayne County Residential Alternative to Prison Program. Yeah. It's for Wayne County probation violators right now. That, that's initially what we're doing. Wayne County probation violators, and that started today. We had uh, some probation violators come over, and and it's going to be a four to six month program where they're going to be involved in some vocational training. Yeah, culinary arts, right? Culinary arts, yeah. yep. And we'll, we'll also, we have some uh, cognitive treatment and programming for them. Uh, there'll be some mentoring pieces involved in that. And it, it's going to be a pretty active four to six month. And, it, and it's an alternative to prison. It's one last chance. But then not just put them in there and time out. It's fill, fill their day with programming. And, well, um, they can get certificates. Or, and, yeah, so they get, get certified. Employed, employed, and employed, and right. increase their job you know, ability to, to obtain employment. It's something that's, it's brand new. You know, it's our first run with it. And the, well, nobody in the country is doing this right, stuff. So right. It's, and, it's uh, brand new everywhere. Yeah, it's going to be, you know, obviously there will be a few ups and downs and some growing right. pains. But, you know, the staff between uh, the Metropolitan Territory and, and the probation department and Manager Gray has been heavily involved. The in, circuit court. Yep. Heavily involved in it. Yeah, and the third, third Circuit Court judges being willing to send the individuals there. And then our staff at, at the Detroit Reentry Center being open because there's, there's a lot of different things going on there. You know, we have bridges and DPP, and we have another domestic violence pro, uh, pilot program going on. You know, there's ASAT and RSAT, and now we're, we're adding on the piece of probation violators. And our staff have to be flexible and, and willing to understand who they're working right. with. And, you know, could, from each housing unit you go to at, at DRC, it's a different program. It's a different mentality. Probation violators, pro board referrals, probation violators, there's prisoners. Well, I think this is the first to have probation probationers at DRC. In, it is. In, in the second. But you know what's cool is, is this is what, what a unique option for judges in the Third Circuit Court to, you know, to say... Instead of sending somebody to prison because they think they feel like they're out of options, to say, try this program. Our, our, the largest amount of people coming into intake at RGC and WHB are probation violators. 30% of intake at our facilities at RGC and WHB is probation right. violators. Right. So what a unique option to say. Instead of but not only send them there, but then fill them with programming. Exactly. And give, give them some tools to succeed. Exactly, exactly. Don't you just know? send them there for a time off for six months. Right. But So they can come out more successful, come out with um, you know more employable, come out with some better thinking. So yeah, what a unique option for the Third Circuit Court. Hopefully, you know programs like this, if, if they're successful, can roll out to the outstate territory to other areas of the state. Um, so hopefully, you know, see some success in this program. Um, I can't see how we can't. You know, I think it's going to be a great program, and you know, I, I, hope, I yeah. hope it goes well for you. Yeah, and it's a continuous learning part on our staff. 
to always being well, willing to adapt. And, it, and it's a it's it's a vision, a big picture, you know, understanding the big picture and, and what the benefits of, of this type of programming is. You know, it, it's it's something that long, has you know, long-term effects that, that will be a very positive outcome. It's just a matter of staying the course, overcoming the ups and downs and, and learning what's best and providing that program and creating some success for those individuals after they graduate. Well, you know, the director came in in July and, she, and one of her focuses, you know, she had a, a ton of key focuses and one of them was to put more resources towards probationers. She wants to help people at the front end rather than waiting until they got right. in prison. So right. I think you're seeing now that she is doing what she said and, you know, this is, this is no a great question. program. I can't wait to see how this goes. Yeah, we're excited and uh, we look forward to it and, uh, and we'll continue Work, work at it and, and make sure uh, things go well. Well, Noah, another one down. Do uh, you have anything else you want to you get out? I don't. I, it's been a pleasure. And uh, again, thank you, Judge Beebe, for joining yeah. us. And, and Greg and, and Judge Beebe, remember one thing. Go Team FOH! <laughs>